0: Volume 2 chapter 3 of The Last Man This is a LibriVox recording all LibriVox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by Christine Blashford www.sidepodcast.com The Last Man by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley volume 2 chapter 3 The stars still shone brightly when I awoke and Taurus high in the southern heaven showed that it was midnight I awoke from disturbed dreams methought i had been invited to timon's last feast i came with keen appetite the covers were removed the hot water sent up its unsatisfying steams while i fled before the anger of the host who assumed the form of raymond while to my diseased fancy the vessels hurled by him after me were surcharged with fetid vapour and my friend's shape altered by a thousand distortions expanded into a gigantic phantom bearing on its brow the sign of pestilence the growing shadow rose and rose filling and then seeming to endeavour to burst beyond the adamantine vault that bent over, sustaining and enclosing the world. The nightmare became torture, with a strong effort I threw off sleep, and recalled reason to her wanted functions. My first thought was Perdita, to her I must return, her I must support, drawing such food from despair as might best sustain her wounded heart, recalling her from the wild excesses of grief, by the austere laws of duty, and the soft tenderness of regret. The position of the stars was my only guide. I turned from the awful ruin of the Golden City, and, after great exertions succeeded in extricating myself from its enclosure. I met a company of soldiers outside the walls. I borrowed a horse from one of them, and hastened to my sister. The appearance of the plain was changed during this short interval. The encampment was broken up. The relics of the disbanded army met in small companies here and there. Each face was clouded. Every gesture spoke astonishment and dismay. With a heavy heart I entered the palace, and stood fearful to advance, to speak, to look. In the midst of the hall was Perdita. She sat on the marble pavement, her head fallen on her bosom, her hair dishevelled. Her fingers twined busily one within the other. She was pale as marble, and every feature was contracted by agony. She perceived me, and looked up inquiringly. Her half-glance of hope was misery. The words died before I could articulate them. I felt a ghastly smile wrinkle my lips. She understood my gesture. Again her head fell. Again her fingers worked restlessly. At last I recovered speech, but my voice terrified her. The hapless girl had understood my look, and for worlds she would not that the tale of her heavy misery should have been shaped out and confirmed by hard, irrevocable words. Nay, she seemed to wish to distract my thoughts from the subject. She rose from the floor. Hush, she said, whisperingly. After much weeping Clara sleeps we must not disturb her. She seated herself then on the same ottoman where I had left her in the morning resting on the beating heart of her Raymond. I dared not approach her, but sat at a distant corner, watching her starting and nervous gestures at length in an abrupt manner she asked where is he oh fear not she continued fear not that i should entertain hope yet tell me have you found him to have him once more in my arms to see him however changed is all i desire though constantinople be heaped above him as a tomb yet i must find him then cover us with the city's weight with a mountain piled above i care not so that one grave hold raymond and his perdita then weeping she clung to me Take me to him, she cried. Unkind Lionel, why do you keep me here? Of myself I cannot find him, but you know where he lies. Lead me thither. At first these agonizing plaints filled me with intolerable compassion, but soon I endeavoured to extract patience for her from the ideas she suggested. I related my adventures of the night, my endeavours to find our lost one, and my disappointment— turning her thoughts this way i gave them an object which rescued them from insanity with apparent calmness she discussed with me the probable spot where he might be found and planned the means we should use for that purpose then hearing of my fatigue and abstinence she herself brought me food i seized the favourable moment and endeavoured to awaken in her something beyond the killing torpor of grief as i spoke my subject carried me away deep admiration grief the offspring of truest affection The overflowing of a heart bursting with sympathy for all that had been great and sublime in the career of my friend, inspired me as I poured forth the praises of Raymond. "'Alas for us!' I cried, who have lost this latest honour of the world. Beloved Raymond! He has gone to the nations of the dead. He has become one of those who render the dark abode of the obscure grave illustrious by dwelling there. He has journeyed on the road that leads to it, and joined the mighty of soul who went before him.' when the world was in its infancy death must have been terrible and man left his friends and kindred to dwell a solitary stranger in an unknown country but now he who dies finds many companions gone before to prepare for his reception the great of past ages people in it the exalted hero of our own days is counted among its inhabitants while life becomes doubly the desert and the solitude What a noble creature was Raymond, the first among the men of our time! By the grandeur of his conceptions, the graceful daring of his actions, by his wit and beauty he won and ruled the minds of all. Of one only fault he might have been accused, but his death has cancelled that— I have heard him called inconstant of purpose when he deserted, for the sake of love, the hope of sovereignty, and when he abdicated the protectorship of England, men blamed his infirmity of purpose. Now his death has crowned his life, and to the end of time it will be remembered that he devoted himself a willing victim to the glory of Greece. Such was his choice, he expected to die. He foresaw that he should leave this cheerful earth, the lightsome sky, and thy love Perdita. Yet he neither hesitated or turned back, going right onward to his mark of fame, while the earth lasts his actions will be recorded with praise grecian maidens will in devotion strew flowers on his tomb and make the air around it resonant with patriotic hymns in which his name will find high record i saw the features of perdita soften the sternness of grief yielded to tenderness i continued thus to honour him is the sacred duty of his survivors to make his name even as an holy spot of ground enclosing it from all hostile attacks by our praise shedding on it the blossoms of love and regret guarding it from decay and bequeathing it untainted to posterity such is the duty of his friends a dearer one belongs to you perdita mother of his child do you remember in her infancy with what transport you beheld clara recognizing in her the united being of yourself and raymond joying to view in this living temple a manifestation of your eternal loves even such is she still you say that you have lost raymond oh no yet he lives with you and in you there From him she sprung flesh of his flesh, bone of his bone, and not, as heretofore, are you content to trace in her downy cheek and delicate limbs an affinity to Raymond, but in her enthusiastic affections, in the sweet qualities of her mind, you may still find him living, the good, the great, the beloved. Be it your care to foster this similarity, be it your care to render her worthy of him, so that, when she glory in her origin, she take not shame for what she is. I could perceive that, when I recalled my sister's thoughts to her duties in life, she did not listen with the same patience as before. She appeared to suspect a plan of consolation on my part, from which she, cherishing her newborn grief, revolted. You talk of the future, she said, while the present is all to me. Let me find the earthly dwelling of my beloved. Let us rescue that from common dust, so that in times to come men may point to the sacred tomb and name it his, then to other thoughts and a new course of life, or what else fate in her cruel tyranny may have marked out for me?' After a short repose I prepared to leave her, that I might endeavour to accomplish her wish. In the meantime we were joined by Clara, whose pallid cheek and scared look showed the deep impression grief had made on her young mind. She seemed to be full of something, to which she could not give words, but, seizing an opportunity afforded by Perdita's absence, she preferred to me an earnest prayer, that I would take her within view of the gate at which her father had entered Constantinople she promised to commit no extravagance to be docile and immediately to return i could not refuse for clara was not an ordinary child her sensibility and intelligence seemed already to have endowed her with the rights of womanhood with her therefore before me on my horse attended only by the servant who was to reconduct her we rode to the top kapow we found a party of soldiers gathered round it they were listening they are human cries said one more like the howling of a dog replied another and again they bent to catch the sound of regular distant moans which issued from the precincts of the ruined city That, Clara, I said, is the gate that the street which yestermorn your father rode up. Whatever Clara's intention had been in asking to be brought hither, it was balked by the presence of the soldiers. With earnest gaze she looked on the labyrinth of smoking-piles which had been a city, and then expressed her readiness to return home. At this moment a melancholy howl struck on our ears. It was repeated. Hark! cried Clara, he is there. That is Florio, my father's dog.' It seemed to me impossible that she could recognize the sound, but she persisted in her assertion till she gained credit with the crowd about. At least it would be a benevolent action to rescue the sufferer, whether human or brute, from the desolation of the town. So, sending Clara back to her home, I again entered Constantinople. Encouraged by the impunity attendant on my former visit, several soldiers who had made a part of Raymond's bodyguard, who had loved him, and sincerely mourned his loss, accompanied me it is impossible to conjecture the strange enchainment of events which restored the lifeless form of my friend to our hands in that part of the town where the fire had most raged the night before and which now lay quenched black and cold the dying dog of raymond crouched beside the mutilated form of its lord at such a time sorrow has no voice affliction tamed by its very vehemence is mute the poor animal recognized me licked my hand crept close to its lord and died he had been evidently thrown from his horse by some falling ruin, which had crushed his head and defaced his whole person. I bent over the body, and took in my hand the edge of his cloak, less altered in appearance than the human frame it clothed. I pressed it to my lips, while the rough soldiers gathered round, mourning over this worthiest prey of death, as if regret and endless lamentation could re-illumine the extinguished spark, or call to its shattered prison-house of flesh the liberated spirit. Yesterday those limbs were worth an universe— they then enshrined a transcendent power whose intents words and actions were worthy to be recorded in letters of gold now the superstition of affection alone could give value to the shattered mechanism which incapable and clod-like, no more resembled raymond than the fallen rain is like the former mansion of cloud in which it climbed the higher skies and gilded by the sun attracted all eyes and satiated the sense by its excess of beauty such as he had now become, such as was his terrene vesture, defaced and spoiled, we wrapped it in our cloaks, and lifting the burthen in our arms, bore it from the city of the dead. The question arose as to where we should deposit him. In our road to the palace we passed through the Greek cemetery. Here, on a tablet of black marble, I caused him to be laid. The cypresses waved high above. Their death-like gloom accorded with his state of nothingness. We cut branches of the funereal trees and placed them over him, and on these again his sword. I left a guard to protect this treasure of dust, and ordered perpetual torches to be burned around. When I returned to Perdita, I found that she had already been informed of the success of my undertaking. He, her beloved, the sole and eternal object of her passionate tenderness, was restored to her such was the maniac language of her enthusiasm what though these limbs moved not and these lips could no more frame modulated accents of wisdom and love what though like a weed flung from the fruitless sea he lay the prey of corruption still that was the form she had caressed those the lips that meeting hers had drank the spirit of love from the comingling breath That was the earthly mechanism of dissoluble clay she had called her own. True, she looked forward to another life, true, the burning spirit of love seemed to her unextinguishable throughout eternity, yet at this time with human fondness she clung to all that her human senses permitted her to see and feel to be a part of Raymond. Pale as marble, clear and beaming as that, she heard my tale and inquired concerning the spot where he had been deposited. Her features had lost the distortion of grief, her eyes were brightened, her very person seemed dilated while the excessive whiteness and even transparency of her skin and something hollow in her voice bore witness that not tranquillity but excess of excitement occasioned the treacherous calm that settled on her countenance i asked her where he should be buried she replied at athens even at the athens which he loved without the town on the acclivity of Hemetus. there is a rocky recess which he pointed out to me as the spot where he would wish to repose my own desire certainly was that he should not be removed from the spot where he now lay, but her wish was of course to be complied with, and I entreated her to prepare without delay for our departure. Behold now the melancholy train cross the flats of Thrace, and wind through the defiles, and over the mountains of Macedonia, coast the clear waves of the Peneus, cross the larissian plain, pass the straits of Thermopylae, and ascending in succession Oeta and Parnassus, descend to the fertile plain of Athens. Women bear with resignation these long-drawn ills, but to a man's impatient spirit the slow motion of our cavalcade, the melancholy repose we took at noon, the perpetual presence of the pall gorgeous though it was, that wrapped the rifled casket which had contained raymond, the monotonous recurrence of day and night unvaried by hope or change, all the circumstances of our march were intolerable. Perdita shut up in herself spoke little her carriage was closed and when we rested she sat leaning her pale cheek on her white cold hand with eyes fixed on the ground indulging thoughts which refused communication or sympathy we descended from parnassus emerging from its many folds and passed through lividea on our road to attica Perdita would not enter Athens, but, reposing at Marathon on the night of our arrival, conducted me on the following day to the spot selected by her as the treasure-house of Raymond's deer remains. It was in a recess near the head of the ravine to the south of Himetus, the chasm deep, black, and hoary, swept from the summit to the base. In the fissures of the rock myrtle underwood grew the wild thyme, the food of many nations of bees, enormous crags protruded into the cleft, some beetling over, others rising perpendicularly from it. At the foot of this sublime chasm a fertile laughing valley reached from sea to sea, and beyond was spread the blue Aegean, sprinkled with islands, the light waves glancing beneath the sun. Close to the spot on which we stood was a solitary rock, high and conical, which, divided on every side from the mountain, seemed a nature-hewn pyramid. With little labour this block was reduced to a perfect shape, the narrow cell was scooped out beneath in which Raymond was placed, and a short inscription, carved in the living stone, recorded the name of its tenant, the cause and error of his death. "'Everything was accomplished with speed under my directions. "'I agreed to leave the finishing and guardianship of the tomb "'to the head of the religious establishment at Athens, "'and by the end of October prepared for my return to England. "'I mentioned this to Perdita. "'It was painful to appear to drag her from the last scene that spoke of her lost one, "'but to linger here was vain, "'and my very soul was sick with its yearning to rejoin my Idris and her babes. "'In reply my sister requested me to accompany her the following evening to the tomb of Raymond. "'Some days had passed since I had visited the spot.' The path to it had been enlarged, and steps hewn in the rock led us less circuitously than before to the spot itself. The platform on which the pyramid stood was enlarged, and looking towards the south, in a recess overshadowed by the straggling branches of a wild fig-tree, I saw foundations dug, and props and rafters fixed, evidently the commencement of a cottage. Standing on its unfinished threshold, the tomb was at our right hand the whole ravine and plain and azure sea immediately before us, the dark rocks received a glow from the descending sun, which glanced along the cultivated valley, and dyed in purple and orange the placid waves. We sat on a rocky elevation, and I gazed with rapture on the beauteous panorama of living and changeful colours, which varied and enhanced the graces of earth and ocean. Did I not do right, said Padita, in having my loved one conveyed hither? Hereafter this will be the cynosure of Greece." In such a spot death loses half its terrors, and even the inanimate dust appears to partake of the spirit of beauty which hallows this region. Lionel, he sleeps there, that is the grave of Raymond, he whom in my youth I first loved, whom my heart accompanied in days of separation and anger, to whom I am now joined for ever. Never, mark me, never will I leave this spot. Methinks his spirit remains here as well as that dust, which, uncommunicable though it be, is more precious in its nothingness than aught else widowed earth clasps to her sorrowing bosom. The myrtle-bushes, the thyme, the little cyclamen which peep from the fissures of the rock, all the produce of the place, bear affinity to him. The light that invests the hills participates in his essence, and sky and mountains, sea and valley, are imbued by the presence of his spirit. I will live and die here. Go you to England, Lionel, return to sweet Idris and dearest Adrian, return and let my orphan girl be as a child of your own in your house. Look on me as dead, and truly, if death be a mere change of state, I am dead.' this is another world from that which late i inhabited from that which is now your home here i hold communion only with the has-been and to come go you to england and leave me where alone i can consent to drag out the miserable days which i must still live a shower of tears terminated her sad harangue i had expected some extravagant proposition and remained silent awhile collecting my thoughts that i might the better combat her fanciful scheme You cherish dreary thoughts, my dear Perdita, I said, nor do I wonder that for a time your better reason should be influenced by passionate grief and a disturbed imagination. Even I am in love with this last home of Raymond's. Nevertheless, we must quit it. I expected this, cried Perdita. I suppose that you would treat me as a mad foolish girl. But do not deceive yourself. This cottage is built by my order, and here I shall remain until the hour arrives when I may share his happier dwelling. My dearest girl— and what is there so strange in my design i might have deceived you i might have talked of remaining here only a few months in your anxiety to reach windsor you would have left me and without reproach or contention i might have pursued my plan but i disdained the artifice or rather in my wretchedness it was my only consolation to pour out my heart to you my brother my only friend You will not dispute with me. You know how willful your poor, misery-stricken sister is. Take my girl with you, wean her from sights and thoughts of sorrow. Let infantine hilarity revisit her heart, and animate her eyes. So could it never be were she near me. It is far better for all of you that you should never see me again. For myself I will not voluntarily seek death, that is, I will not, while I can command myself, and I can here, but drag me from this country, and my power of self-control vanishes. Nor can I answer for the violence my agony of grief may lead me to commit.' you clothe your meaning perdita i replied in powerful words yet that meaning is selfish and unworthy of you you have often agreed with me that there is but one solution to the intricate riddle of life to improve ourselves and contribute to the happiness of others and now in the very prime of life you desert your principles and shut yourself up in useless solitude will you think of raymond less at windsor the scene of your early happiness will you commune less with his departed spirit while you watch over and cultivate the rare excellence of his child you have been sadly visited nor do i wonder that a feeling akin to insanity should drive you to bitter and unreasonable imaginings but a home of love awaits you in your native england my tenderness and affection must soothe you the society of raymond's friends will be of more solace than these dreary speculations we will all make it our first care our dearest task to contribute to your happiness perdita shook her head If it could be so, she replied, I were much in the wrong to disdain your offers, but it is not a matter of choice. I can live here only. I am a part of this scene. Each and all its properties are a part of me. This is no sudden fancy. I live by it. The knowledge that I am here rises with me in the morning, and enables me to endure the light. It is mingled with my food, which else were poison. It walks, it sleeps with me, for ever it accompanies me. Here I may even cease to repine, and may add my tardy consent to the decree which has taken him from me. He would rather have died such a death, which will be recorded in history to endless time, than have lived to old age unknown unhonoured. Nor can I desire better than having been the chosen and beloved of his heart, here in youth's prime, before added years can tarnish the best feelings of my nature, to watch his tomb and speedily rejoin him in his blessed repose." So much, my dearest Lionel, I have said, wishing to persuade you that I do right. If you are unconvinced, I can add nothing further by way of argument, and I can only declare my fixed resolve. I stay here. Force only can remove me. Be it so, drag me away. I return. Confine me, imprison me. Still I escape and come here. Or would my brother rather devote the heartbroken Perdita to the straw and chains of a maniac than suffer her to rest in peace beneath the shadow of his society in this my own selected and beloved recess?' all this appeared to me i own methodized madness i imagined that it was my imperative duty to take her from scenes that thus forcibly reminded her of her loss nor did i doubt that in the tranquillity of our family circle at windsor she would recover some degree of composure and in the end of happiness my affection for clara also led me to oppose these fond dreams of cherished grief her sensibility had already been too much excited her infant heedlessness too soon exchanged for deep and anxious thought the strange and romantic scheme of her mother might confirm and perpetuate the painful view of life which had intruded itself thus early on her contemplation on returning home the captain of the steam packet with whom i had agreed to sail came to tell me that accidental circumstances hastened his departure and that if i went with him i must come on board at five on the following morning i hastily gave my consent to this arrangement and as hastily formed a plan through which Perdita should be forced to become my companion I believe that most people in my situation would have acted in the same manner, yet this consideration does not, or rather did not in after time, diminish the reproaches of my conscience. At the moment I felt convinced that I was acting for the best, and that all I did was right and even necessary. I sat with Perdita and soothed her by my seeming assent to her wild scheme. She received my concurrence with pleasure, and a thousand times over thanked her deceiving, deceitful brother. As night came on, her spirits, enlivened by my unexpected concession, regained an almost forgotten vivacity. I pretended to be alarmed by the feverish glow in her cheek. I entreated her to take a composing draught. I poured out the medicine, which she took docilely from me. I watched her as she drank it. Falsehood and artifice are in themselves so hateful that, though I still thought I did right, a feeling of shame and guilt came painfully upon me. I left her, and soon heard that she slept soundly under the influence of the opiate I had administered. She was carried thus unconscious on board. The anchor weighed, and the wind being favourable, we stood far out to sea with all the canvas spread, and the power of the engine to assist— "'We scudded swiftly and steadily through the chafed element. "'It was late in the day before Perdita awoke, "'and a longer time elapsed before recovering from the torpor occasioned by the laudanum. "'She perceived her change of situation. "'She started wildly from her couch and flew to the cabin window. "'The blue and troubled sea sped past the vessel and was spread shoreless around. "'The sky was covered by a rack, which in its swift motion showed how speedily she was borne away. "'The creaking of the masts, the clang of the wheels, the tramp above, "'all persuaded her that she was already far from the shores of Greece.' where are we she cried where are we going the attendant whom i had stationed to watch her replied to england and my brother is on deck madam unkind unkind exclaimed the poor victim as with a deep sigh she looked on the waste of waters then without further remark she threw herself on her couch and closing her eyes remained motionless so that but for the deep sighs that burst from her it would have seemed that she slept As soon as I heard that she had spoken, I sent Clara to her, that the sight of the lovely innocent might inspire gentle and affectionate thoughts, but neither the presence of her child nor a subsequent visit from me could rouse my sister. She looked on Clara with a countenance of woeful meaning, but she did not speak. When I appeared she turned away, and in reply to my inquiries only said, "'You know not what you have done.' I trusted that this sullenness betokened merely the struggle between disappointment and natural affection, and that in a few days she would be reconciled to her fate." when night came on she begged that clara might sleep in a separate cabin her servant however remained with her about midnight she spoke to the latter saying that she had had a bad dream and bade her go to her daughter and bring word whether she rested quietly the woman obeyed The breeze that had flagged since sunset now rose again. I was on deck, enjoying our swift progress. The quiet was disturbed only by the rush of waters as they divided before the steady keel, the murmur of the moveless and full sails, the wind whistling in the shrouds, and the regular motion of the engine. The sea was gently agitated, now showing a white crest, and now resuming a uniform hue. The clouds had disappeared, and dark ether clipped the broad ocean, in which the constellations vainly sought their accustomed mirror. Our rate could not have been less than eight knots. Suddenly I heard a splash in the sea. The sailors on watch rushed to the side of the vessel, with the cry, "'Someone gone overboard!' "'It is not from deck,' said the man at the helm. "'Something has been thrown from the aft cabin.' A call for the boat to be lowered was echoed from the deck. I rushed into my sister's cabin. It was empty. With sails abaft, the engine stopped, the vessel remained unwillingly stationary, until after an hour's search my poor Perdita was brought on board. But no care could reanimate her, no medicine cause her dear eyes to open, and the blood to flow again from her pulseless heart.' One clenched hand contained a slip of paper, on which was written, To Athens. To ensure her removal thither, and prevent the irrecoverable loss of her body in the wide sea, she had had the precaution to fasten a long shawl around her waist, and again to the staunchness of the cabin window. She had drifted somewhat under the keel of the vessel, and her being out of sight occasioned the delay in finding her. And thus the ill-starred girl died a victim to my senseless rashness. Thus, in early day, she left us for the company of the dead, and preferred to share the rocky grave of Raymond before the animated scene this cheerful earth afforded, and the society of loving friends. Thus, in her twenty-ninth year, she died, having enjoyed some few years of the happiness of paradise, and sustaining a reverse to which her impatient spirit and affectionate disposition were unable to submit. As I marked the placid expression that had settled on her countenance in death, I felt, in spite of the pangs of remorse, in spite of heart-rending regret, that it was better to die so, than to drag on long, miserable years of repining and inconsolable grief. Stress of weather drove us up the Adriatic Gulf, and our vessel being hardly fitted to weather a storm, we took refuge in the port of Ancona. Here I met Giorgio Pali, the vice-admiral of the Greek fleet, a former friend and warm partisan of Raymond. I committed the remains of my lost Perdita to his care, for the purpose of having them transported to Himetas and placed in a cell her raiment already occupied beneath the pyramid this was all accomplished even as i wished she reposed beside her beloved and the tomb above was inscribed with the united names of Raymond and perdita i then came to a resolution of pursuing our journey to england over land my own heart was racked by regrets and remorse the apprehension that Raymond had departed for ever that his name blended eternally with the past must be erased from every anticipation of the future had come slowly upon me i had always admired his talents his noble aspirations his grand conceptions of the glory and majesty of his ambition his utter want of mean passions his fortitude and daring in greece i had learnt to love him his very waywardness and self-abandonment to the impulses of superstition attached me to him doubly it might be weakness but it was the antipodes of all that was grovelling and selfish to these pangs were added the loss of perdita lost through my own accursed self-will and conceit this dear one my sole relation whose progress I had marked from tender childhood through the varied path of life and seen her throughout conspicuous for integrity, devotion, and true affection, for all that constitutes the peculiar graces of the female character, and beheld her at last the victim of too much loving, too constant an attachment to the perishable and lost, she, in her pride of beauty and life, had thrown aside the pleasant perception of the apparent world for the unreality of the grave, and had left poor Clara quite an orphan. I concealed from this beloved child that her mother's death was voluntary, and tried every means to awaken cheerfulness in her sorrow-stricken spirit." one of my first acts for the recovery even of my own composure was to bid farewell to the sea its hateful splash renewed again and again to my sense the death of my sister its roar was a dirge in every dark hull that was tossed on its inconstant bosom i imaged a bier that would convey to death all who trusted to its treacherous smiles farewell to the sea come my clara sit beside me in this aerial bark quickly and gently it cleaves the azure serene and with soft undulation glides upon the current of the air or if storm shake its fragile mechanism the green earth is below we can descend and take shelter on the stable continent here aloft the companions of the swift-winged birds we skim through the unresisting element fleeting and fearlessly the light-boat heaves not nor is opposed by death-bearing waves the ether opens before the prow and the shadow of the globe that upholds it shelters us from the noonday sun Beneath are the plains of Italy, or the vast undulations of the wave-like epennines. Fertility reposes in their many folds, and woods crown the summits. The free and happy peasant, unshackled by the Austrian, bears the double harvest to the garner, and the refined citizens rear without dread the long-belighted tree of knowledge in this garden of the world. We were lifted above the alpine peaks, and from their deep and brawling ravines entered the plain of fair France, and after an airy journey of six days we landed at Dieppe furled the feathered wings and closed the silken globe of our little pinnace a heavy rain made this mode of travelling now incommodious so we embarked in a steam-packet and after a short passage landed at portsmouth A strange story was rife here. A few days before, a tempest-struck vessel had appeared off the town. The hull was parched-looking and cracked, the sails rent, and bent in a careless, unseamanlike manner, the shrouds tangled and broken. She drifted towards the harbour, and was stranded on the sands at the entrance. In the morning the custom-house officers, together with a crowd of idlers, visited her. One only of the crew appeared to have arrived with her. He had got to shore, and had walked a few paces towards the town, and then— vanquished by malady and approaching death had fallen on the inhospitable beach he was found stiff his hands clenched and pressed against his breast his skin nearly black his matted hair and bristly beard were signs of a long-protracted misery it was whispered that he had died of the plague no one ventured on board the vessel and strange sights were averred to be seen at night walking the deck and hanging on the masts and shrouds she soon went to pieces i was shown where she had been and saw her disjoined timbers tossed on the waves the body of the man who had landed had been buried deep in the sand and none could tell more than that the vessel was American built, and that several months before the Fortunatas had sailed from Philadelphia, of which no tidings were afterwards received, End of Chapter Three.